Podcasting from a secret location, deep inside the political colossus. This is Radio Free GOP, the voice of the Republican resistance. Part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. Let me tell you, I'm a really smart guy. Oh my God, they've got a madman on their hands. We will have no truth nor folly with you or the grisly gang who work your wicked will. You do your work and we will do our best. We've come to a turning point, a moment for hard decisions. If not us, who? And if not now, when? It's 1159 at Radio Free America. And this is Uncle Sam with music and the truth until dawn. Right now, I've got a few words for some of our brothers and sisters in the occupied zone. The chair is against the wall. The chair is against the wall. This is Radio Free GOP with your host, Mike Murphy. Welcome to Radio Free GOP, the voice of the Republican resistance. I'm Mike Murphy, and here we are two weeks out. This week, Trump in a tailspin. The U.S. Senate races neck and neck with the Senate at stake. And important information as the board of directors of Radio Free GOP meets to decide our future. Plus, our special Halloween interview with actor, comedian, writer, and shock horror expert, Dana Gould. It's all here on Radio Free GOP. He used to have a big career, but now he's had enough. Podcasting's like therapy. He shrinks as it's raised up. Radio Free GOP. Okay, two weeks out of the election. It's finally almost over. And what do we know? <laughs> it's a train wreck. Much is predicted here on Radio Free GOP. I don't want to say I've been right about this, but... I've been right about this. I had to endorse so many experts and pundits telling me, oh, Mike, you don't get it. There's a secret Trump vote, or we're going to win it on turnout, or we're going to win it with magic beans, or Trump is going to electrify America, blah, blah, blah. This guy has always been what I called him over a year ago, a political zombie, the walking dead. He was never going to be president of the United States. Now, sure, he can bump into furniture and groan and bite stuff. He bit a lot of people, but in the end... He was never going to be president, and now we know it. He was stuck in a cul-de-sac of demographics. He was not an accretive candidate. He's run a clownish semi-campaign that's really more of a concert tour. On every level, this guy has been America's biggest loser. And now the voters are going to cash him in, and I, for one, am happy to see it. Now, I'm happy to see it as kind of the speed bump, because while it's fun to be proven right, it's not fun to watch the party I've worked for and love very much get slaughtered in a lot of local races. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but first, let's do a little precursor to the Trump blame game. Now, people are going to blame all kinds of people for the Trump collapse. Now, some of the leftover helicopter moms who deeply love Marco Rubio blame me because Right to Rise, the super PAC I ran, didn't spend all our money attacking Trump. Instead, we tried to help Jeb Bush, and we ran comparison ads on Marco Rubio, and they're still mad about that. Well, our job wasn't to elect Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz. Our job was to help Jeb Bush, and the best strategy was to spend our money consolidating our half of the party and then take on Trump or mistakenly, the candidate we thought was the bigger threat for the nomination, Ted Cruz. But there's a lot more blame than that to go around. I didn't see any of these other candidates taking on Trump early. In fact, most of them, particularly Marco Rubio, were in the witness relocation program, silent on the Trump issue. Marco still is. Some of the others have come around. 
Jeb Bush, meanwhile, and Lindsey Graham led the fight early. They had political courage, which is why I think both of them can sleep pretty well tonight. Who do I really blame, though? Do I blame the media for all the Trump hype? The fact they gave him almost seven times as much coverage in the primary? Partially, but he was the story. No, I'm going to be honest about this. I think there's one group that has the blame and should own it which are the Republican primary voters who chose Trump. They knew what they were buying. Trump hasn't changed an iota since the primary. In fact, one of the reasons he's losing is he's still running a primary campaign. But nearly 14 million, about 44% of the Republican primary voters, voted for Trump, and that plurality was enough to nominate him. And they knew what they were getting. Trump's act has been transparent from the start. None of this stuff is a surprise. There was no Trump pivot to some kind of crazy in the general election. He started out crazy, and he stayed there. So will this be a learning experience for Republican primary voters? Will the folks who vote for Trump understand what they did and the price we're going to pay? Result being, of course, President Hillary Clinton. This is the Halloween show, after all. Or will they just go on and repeat their mistake? Will they believe all this paranoia and crazy stuff coming out of the Trump campaign about the election being rigged and everything else? Because we all know Trump has to be the hero of every story. He can never have failure. He can never accept it, even when the crushing forces of failure are hurtling toward him like a huge planet-sized meteor. Well, we're seeing that'll be the test of the party in the next four years as we decide with another presidential nominating contest who we are. I'm going to have a lot to say about that after the election as the Republican resistance marches on to build a conservative movement that is modernized and can win elections. But right now, let's tally the damage. Beyond the presidential crush we're going to have and the domestic policies of Hillary Rodham Clinton, which, by the way, are kind of an interesting question, is she's going to be caught in the old Star Wars garbage compactor between the loony left, led by Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on one side, and dug in Republicans, particularly in the House, on the other. She's really going to have to maneuver, and the only way out for her is to go to the center and try to make some Republican compromises which is smart, but awful hard to do politically, particularly in her caucus. So she's going to have a heavy lift as president. It'll be interesting to see if she tries to do that and get things done, or if she goes hard left and joins the Bernie and Elizabeth Army of the Red. Well, that's for later. Right now, let's look at what kind of damage we honorable pachyderms might face on Election Day. And, well, it's grim. There have been two theories, and I've talked about this before, about the Senate races. One, the traditional theory, you get wiped out at the top of the ticket and your vulnerable senators all lose. I've said before, if you put a gun to my head, I'm going with that theory. Although the new theory, that because of cable TV and the internet, we have so much context, so much more information, that you know your local Pat Toomey is not crazy about Trump, and you may not punish him for whatever happens at the top of the ticket. Plus, the fact that nobody's that excited about Hillary Clinton, even Democrats, she is, as I often say, the Dasani bottled water of politics. Nobody really wants it, but it's so ubiquitous. The distribution is so powerful, you can't escape the stuff and you wind up drinking it. So will those two factors result in people ticket splitting at a higher level and voting Hillary for president, both because they want Hillary or because they can't fathom Trump, and then split their ticket and vote for a Republican in the Senate and maybe in the local congressional race to put, to coin a phrase, a hedge on Hillary, not to give her a blank check, to avoid a runaway train. <laughs> These are the political theories I've been trying to push on the committees for a while now with mixed success. It started to happen because politicians out in the field are beginning to understand as of, oh, about 10 days ago how bad this is, and they are doing what politicians always do, try to save their own skins. 
Though the problem with that strategy late is you don't get any credit for it. When you do it early, when it's tough, you do pretty well. You get credit for being independent. But very few would do that because they were all afraid the Trump army would punish them. We've talked before about how that was a canard. There's very little evidence to suggest that base voters don't act like base voters and pull the Republican lever. I used to cite polling data, which still holds up for Mark Kirk, senator running in Illinois. He was in a very tough race in a very blue state and is polling 92% of the Republican vote or higher, even though he's been staunchly anti-Trump for months. Anyway, everybody's getting on the anti-Trump wagon now. The question is, is it too late to get any credibility? So will we have the ticket splitting or will we have the traditional? That's the question we're going to answer on election day. Right now, the polling, eh, it shows most of these races competitive within a point or two, but we know that top of ticket effect is going to be pretty tough. Am I ready to make a prediction? Eh, I'm going to stick with where I was before. Put a gun to my head. I think we're going to lose the Senate. But my gut tells me there's hope we might hang on by one. It's getting dimmer because the Trump situation is getting worse. Well, we'll see. The good news, by the way, in all this, if there is any, and I, I am scratching to find some, is that in two years, we're going to have another election. And the Senate terrain looks a lot better for the Republicans. The question is, will we learn anything? Will we get any smarter from this? Will our primary voters feel the hangover from the Trump wild bender in the primaries and smarten up a little bit? Or are we going to have to change the process a bit? We're going to have to make some systemic changes to put our own hedge, not just on Hillary, but on crazy. Those will be the things that occupy the Republican debate after the election. But for now, my message to my Republican listeners is the same. Work hard, fight for your local Republicans. Let's try not to lose the Senate. We're not going to lose the House, but the majority we hold on to, the size of it, is very important to give Paul Ryan room to operate and deal. And finally, to my Democrats, I would say this. None of you are going to believe it, but I can make this argument. It is actually better for Hillary Clinton if the Republicans hold on to the Senate by one vote. Here's my rationale. We're closed with this. If the Republicans lose the Senate and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer takes over, Hillary will be captive to a majority that is going to very much vibrate to the strongest faction of the Democratic Party, the Elizabeth Warren Bernie Sanders left. And that's going to push her into a corner where she's not going to be able to get anything done. We're just going to have more gridlock. But if the Senate is essentially split 50-50 with Cain casting a vote to tie, the vice president does that, or 51 Republican, then the fragile situation in the Senate will allow Hillary to corral her own caucus and say, look, I have to work with these Republicans. I can't give you everything you want, but I can sure give you a lot of it. Mitch McConnell hanging onto the Senate by one vote is going to be in a position where he's going to want to deal. He's going to be motivated to because he's going to have trouble holding his world together. And Mitch knows how to cut a good deal. That would give Ryan cover to do the same. So I actually think if Hillary wants to go to the Senate and get some stuff done, the excuse of not quite having control of the Senate could be a useful tool rather than Democrats ruling the Senate, being empowered on the left, thinking they run this town and putting Hillary and a horrible trap on the left that she's not going to be able to get out of. Contrarian theory, I know. Very few partisan Democrats will believe that. But if you want a wheeling, dealing Washington that gets stuff done, or at least tries, makes incremental progress, a one-vote Senate could be your ticket. 
So split those tickets, I would say. Let's see what happens. And if not, we have another election in two short years. This time, however, sans Trump. Now, that's all for this week. We are having our special Halloween show with a special Halloween guest. But before we get to Shockmeister Dana Gold, it's time to do, and you knew this was coming, but you should listen. There's some news, a little commerce. We'll be right back. Mike Murphy, podcasting sanity. Now look, all of America now knows that the Private Equity Funcast is a must-listen if you want to learn about business and private equity. Everybody loves this thing, and nobody loves it more than I do because they were our very much valued first sponsor here at Radio Free GOP. So, what do I say? Get with the program. Check out the Private Equity Funcast. Let me tell you why. The guys who run it, Jim Milbury and Devin Matthews, are industry veterans who aren't scared to tell you how private equity really works from their many years of buying, building, and selling companies. These guys take a refreshingly honest and funny look at how the private equity industry works and how they execute their business inside their Chicago-based firm, Parker Gale Capital. You're here about the art and science of the all-important letter of intent and how to get a CEO job at a private equity-owned company. There's nothing else like the Private Equity Funcast when it comes to inside baseball talk about private equity. And this is something you want to learn about because you may work at a company or be part of a business that one day may want to sell itself to private equity, or you might already be private equity-owned. It pays to be smart about such a big economic force in business. So learn what you need to know by listening to the Private Equity Funcast right there on iTunes or Google Play. And a big thank you to these guys. They've been a great early advertiser for us. So, speaking of advertisers, we called together the gutter snipe crew of criminals, hatchet men, henchmen, twisters, grifters, and the like, who make up our august radio-free GOP board of directors. Because we have some decisions to make about the future of this podcast. One of the decisions is what frequency or how much we extend it after the election. I believe the Republican wars are going to continue, so we have to figure out what our future is. And second, we have to figure out our economic model. Now, here's the good news. Our ratings are way, way up. I think we can even claim to be the number one Republican podcast in the country now, mostly because there aren't very many other ones, but we'll take that tin crown. And uh, advertisers are getting interesting and our rates are going up. That's all good. The problem is we're getting some emails from people saying, oh, do we have to have all these ads? Well, look, you don't even know what's coming. We could double the number of ads in this podcast. But before I sign any long-term ad contracts, I'm going to figure out the future of Radio Free GOP. I'm also, for the next two weeks, going to test a new model. The board has accepted this, albeit reluctantly. They have dollar signs in their eyes. But what we're going to try to do is see how listener-supported we can become. In other words, the PayPal button on RadioFreeGOP.com has become very important. We're going to have far fewer ads for the next two weeks, and we're going to see if you guys would prefer signing up for the subscription model on PayPal than listening to me plug all kinds of products. So the ball's in your hands. We're going to kind of test it for the next two weeks and then see how we do. And after the election, make a final decision about what happens from here with the podcast. Now, how do you do all this stuff? How do you support us without a lot of ads? You go on RadioFreeGOP.com. You click that PayPal button and you sign up 
for a monthly deal where you pay 9, 10, 20 bucks a month and we keep delivering the podcast to you. You can turn it off at any time or you can make a one-time donation. And thank you to two of our mega donors. We now have mega donors who both made a very generous contribution to put us in the black for the last month. You can also go on Amazon. There's a button on the website. So when you shop on Amazon, we get our beak wet with a little taste. That brings in a little bit of money and we appreciate it. And again, we use it to support the podcast. Finally, there's our merch. We're starting to run low, but we have a bunch of uh, t-shirts available. The Orange Menace t-shirt we have plenty of. It's a perfect Halloween gift. And we have our famous upside down Jack Frost Elephant in Distress limited edition shirt. There aren't many left. So you can get all this stuff on RadioFreeGOP.com. You can weigh in and advise our board of directors on what you think we ought to do by sending us an email at comment at RadioFreeGOP.com. Okay, that's the update from the executive suite. And now we're going to end our commerce segment with one more quick plug for our friends at ricochet.com. Why? Because Radio Free GOP is brought to you in part by ricochet.com, the smartest and most civil center-right community on the web. No trolls, they guarantee it. You become a member, you let your voice be heard, and you can listen to a ton of great podcasts, including this one, Radio Free GOP. It's all just $5 a month. Now, for the first month, Radio Free GOP listeners get a special offer, the first month free. All you got to do is go to ricochet.com slash join. That's ricochet.com slash join and sign up today. Okay, back to the podcast. Radio Free GOP. How would you like to be so famous that you were a prisoner of your own voice? Don Knotts. Very likable man, extremely talented man. He can't make obscene phone calls. He might want to. He might be up at four in the morning in a dirty bathrobe. Well, I've been looking at you through the bedroom window. Is this done, Knotts? Ah! They know it's me every time. How the name of Christ they know it's me every goddamn time. It's a caller ID. That's comedian Dana Gould, our guest today on Radio Free GOP. Dana's a good friend of mine, and I owe him some thanks for getting me into this wacky world of podcasting. Dana has an excellent podcast, The Dana Gould Hour, and I've been a guest on it, and the reaction I got and the fun I had got me thinking about why not do my own podcast. Then the rage therapy I badly needed with the rise of the Orange Menace led me to actually give it a try, and here we are with Radio Free GOP. So I'm very grateful to Dana and to David Axelrod, whose podcast was also an inspiration for this one. Now, Dana is an expert not only on comedy, but on the comedy of horror. And I thought because this campaign was such a horror movie, what better to do on Halloween than to talk to astute observer, political junkie, comedian writer, and shock horror master, Dana Gould. So let's get to it. It's time to ask some questions and go behind the scenes. Here's our latest interview. We'll try to keep it. 
We're here with my old friend Dana Gould in the secret location, which this time we're going to give out. It is the Falcon's Layer Recording Studio here in Los Angeles, where Dana does his own podcast, the Dana Gould Hour. That's right. Which got me hooked on this stuff because you had me on as a guest, and despite the hate mail, <laughs> I had a great time, and I thought this podcasting seems fun, so Let I did one too. I wanted to lure you into the acid bath of left wing podcast <laughs> listeners. Yeah, no, no, you know, I, I, I love, I get all these wonderful rings on iTunes, but they seem to all be communists. So uh, I keep saying we're going to have show trials in the Republican Party. I, know, I, I just know. didn't think I'd be the guy in the chair getting the questions. So I think I think it all may turn into a very very dark dream. But let me start with the question I ask everybody on yeah. the old Radio Free GOP podcast. How did you get into this? And in this case, you're not a political consultant, though I think you could be one. You're a very astute political observer, but you're a stand-up comedian, writer, show creator. Well, yeah, it's actually guy. very uh, uh, tied into your, uh, your show, actually. Um, I'm the fifth of six Irish Catholic Massachusetts a uh, very blue collar upbringing and all my older, I have four older brothers and they're all big athletes, hunters, fishermen. And I'm just this genetic anomaly. My nickname as a child was the mailman's kid, but <laughs> I did impressions. And when I was nine, I had, this is 1972 and three, I had a rippingly good Richard Nixon impression. And ah. that was my first like way to get attention. My father would sing, it was the only time my dad would ever single me out of the pack. And it was do Nixon, do Nixon. And I had my little rich, rich little, you know, right? Exactly. I follow him. <laughs> Let me make this perfectly clear. And I was, you know, I was, and I can see now in retrospect, yeah, that must've been really funny. An eight year old kid doing an impression, <laughs> a pretty good impression of the president. And so that um, kind of getting last became your thing. Cause I know it was, yeah. it was a, uh, I've heard and very your, for an eight year old, very in depth, uh, very in depth satire on the right. Nixon administration. <laughs> You're a little too smart for the record. Who has an there. enemies list? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I remember the Gould family crest, too, so you had to get a laugh or die. Yeah, exactly. The Gould family crest is two lions watching television, not speaking to each other. <laughs> so from that 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 tough comedy room yeah. doing Nixon at eight, uh, yeah, but that take sort of, me through the story. Well, that put me on the road to like, this is how I get attention. This is this is how you get, you know, if you really want to go deep dish, uh, you know, this is how you get love. Make people laugh. Right. So uh, I developed a career where I went into bars and begged strangers to love me. <laughs> it's so healthy. But it's um, among those occupations, it's one of the more healthier ones. As I've said, uh, one thing you rarely hear is, now that I've gotten all my emotional stuff cleaned up, I can concentrate on becoming a ventriloquist. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Stand-up becomes Because yes. you get that love of strangers. Yeah, exactly. I think and Trump it, would love to be a stand-up, because I know the real problem there is Fred Trump, way back when, being a pain in the ass as a dad. Yeah, well, he's He's a stand-up tragedian. I would like to. <laughs> so you went out into that circuit. Yeah, I went to college, uh, University of Massachusetts. But uh, even uh, I started doing stand-up two weeks out of high school. And as a college freshman, I was making really good money doing stand-up at college and driving into Boston. So it was always like, as long as I was funny, I, I could make money. And uh, and that's really, I just kind of fell into it. It's really the only thing I know how to do later in life. I became a writer and and, and got into uh, working on The Simpsons and, and things like that that I'm more known for. But it was really uh, kind of the way some people become strippers. How do you get attention? <laughs> or politicians. <laughs> right. No, believe me, they're, they're all cousins, all yeah, a different really variety are. of the same thing. Yeah. So was your act very political in the beginning? It was more social than political, but I was 22, so it really shouldn't have been either. Right, um, right. You know, you don't really, I didn't 
you know, I started doing stand-up comedy when I was 27, and I didn't say anything worthwhile until I was about 32. Right, right. <laughs> but you, you got stage time. Yeah, I got stage you time. Learn how I, to do the funny. Yeah, yeah and I developed my... Uh, I became, you know, like a lot of people who grew up in Massachusetts, we had the dinner plates at our house. We had JFK, RFK... And oddly, Red Fox, which never made sense to me. <laughs> the Holy Trinity. I was say, yeah, there they all are, the entire spectrum. Yeah, but I became obsessed with uh, with all things Kennedy, and a lot of my earlier bits were about uh, the assassin. You know, well, my first clever joke was this, and I said this joke the very first night I did stand-up comedy when I was 17. I said, uh, you know, when you go to church, they can turn wine into blood, but that doesn't work at the beach. And I was like, was it? sorry, it's the blood of Christ. What about the two six-packs? I'd like you to meet the 12 apostles. They never go anywhere apart. I thought that was a clever joke for 17. Yes, it was very clever for 17. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, my first clever joke was that when presidents do the inaugural address, that is the most high-pressure superhuman event. Like you can't mess up. You can't stop in the middle to go to the bathroom. Right, right, <laughs> you know, right exactly. You know, the eyes of the world are upon you. Yeah. Uh, that is a high-pressure moment, and I thought it would just, just be once to see one of them act human. Ash not! Which, a bee! A bee! A bee! <laughs> exactly, get off the robot track. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you had a Kennedy bit because... When I was working for Dennis Miller, a good friend of both of us, yes. I said, oh, I had dinner. I met this uh, buddy of mine and uh, Dana Gould. And Miller was like, genius. <laughs> oh, Gen- no, he's a big fan. And he said, he used to have a bit about JFK and the doors or something like that. I don't yeah, remember well, I the did exact, a, I did a short, but it crushed him forever. Yeah, well, it was when Oliver Stone made the doors and then he made JFK right after. And, and then I said, the movies are so long, they combined them into one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> is everybody in? <laughs> The celebration of the lizard is about to begin. <laughs> the, le- the leather pants. Where are my leather pants? <laughs> to this day, I always, you know, whatever happens, if, if if Trump gets elected, like, you know, on the first day in office, so they whisk you into the quiet room. All right, we have two FOs and Ro- two UFOs in Roswell. Kennedy's brain isn't a monkey. What do you want to know? <laughs> There's some chimp in a cage in the basement of the CIA. The problem with Vietnam is we increased our expenditures without an increase in the tax base. Does my butt look red? My butt feels red. Chimpanzee in a Marilyn Monroe wig in the corner playing with a tire. She's dumber than the real one, trust me. He would have made a great stand-up because he has a great cadence for stand-up he really knows how to deliver JFK. yeah it was like one of the first like joke jokes i ever learned would be great for jfk man goes to a party forgets his wallet there the only thing he remembers was the party had a red door and a gold toilet seat he goes door to door and every red door in town asking for his wallet when he finds his wallet the man says how did you remember my house he said i remembered your red door and your gold toilet seat. And the man says, you're the man who peed in my tuba. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. That's like a perfect, it's beautiful, yeah. Yeah. And that's, by the way, that's a joke I learned when I was like six. (laughs) It's all sold by the Kennedy thing. It's a schoolyard joke, but a goodie. (laughs) You're on the stand-up world, you're rising in that, you get out here, yeah, Probably but, in pilot hell and all that yeah, out here in California. But, but I never did, like, I never became like a deep dish Mort Saul 
political comedian. And I always, you know, my met, well, I would say mentor, I, uh, he was my hero and I, and I did know him, but George Carlin was always sort of my Gandalf. Right. <laughs> sure. And he looked like Gandalf. So it worked yeah, out he well. Did, yeah. He was my Obi-Wan Kenobi and he never went too deep dish because he, he called them layups. Yeah. You know, it's just like, this is like, yeah, it's a layup. It's a, you know, it's, Jim Downey, I knew a little bit, the famous SNL course, writer, yeah, one the, of the, the real uh, kind of brains behind the thing. Yes, absolutely. In the early days. One, of the, the un, the, uh, one of the unknown heroes of Saturday Night Live. And a good, bitter Irish guy. So I liked him. We, I, <laughs> yeah. we, I went through there. Not afraid, to see, we not afraid of, of the bottom of a glass. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> um, but he had a great term of contempt for easy jokes like that. He said, oh, yeah, you're going to be rewarded with a lot of clapter. Oh, perfect. You know, yeah, and that's the perfect, is great. Yeah, 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 the great. perfect description of that kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, you know, the Eugene Levy parody of a stand-up comedian that he used to do on SCTV. I, I, uh, Bobby. Uh, Bobby Bitter. Bit Bittman or something. Yeah, Bobby yeah. Bittman. Bobby Bittman. And the, the one, that, the joke that I remember was, you know what commercial I hate? <laughs> the guy in the toilet and the motorboat. You know what I'd like to do? Flush that guy right down the toilet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Tremendous yeah. explosion of yeah. laughter. But, you know, the, I think that somebody like, like Johnny Carson or, um, you know, the people that host The Tonight Show, I think that's perfect because you're on every day and it's a great summary of the day's events. People like to see it before they go to bed. But in terms of if you're really performing an hour concert, I think, you know, jokes about Trump or Clinton or something, uh, I, I don't really dwell on that. And I don't like to divide the audience. I'm not a raving lefty. I'm, I'm a very... I mean, I personally am a, I'm a raving lefty, but I... Um, you're not, I know you enough no, I mean, to know yeah, you're not... I'm not raving yeah, lefty. There's hope. And, you know, I thought Bernie Sanders was a pipe... You know, hard to believe the guy that said college would be free got a big amount of support from college Yeah, how'd kids. that work, yeah. you know? But, uh, uh, my problem was before I'd give him the nuclear deturrent, I'd like to see him put a hairbrush together. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, well, just the, work through that and yeah. prove he can do that. And well, then maybe we're talking about the triad. Yeah, America often wondered what Larry Fine looked like in his later years. <laughs> But 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 like I also believe that I live in a country where not everybody agrees with me, and then it's a fifty fifteen country, and that you can't have everything the way you want. Right, but the comedy of it is kind of universal, and we're we'll talking about it in a minute. But I want to finish yeah. up on the old career. You get out to L.A. Uh, yeah, I moved to I moved to San Francisco first, and then uh, um, uh, I moved to Los Angeles because I I started in Boston and I kind of did Boston, and I wasn't ready to move to L.A. yet. I thought I still needed a couple of years of a kind of you don't want to go to L.A. before you're really ready to be seen. You know, because people will remember you as they first saw you. And right, I, sure. I knew I wasn't ready, but I really uh, felt like the I had done Boston. And I had friends who lived in San Francisco, and I thought, that would be great. Um, and it wasn't as daunting to me as New York. And then I moved to L.A. a couple of years after that. And, uh, yeah, I was I moved right around in the um, – I fell right into a group of people, Ben Stiller, Janine Garofalo, Bob Odenkirk, and a little kid named Judd Apatow. <laughs> scrappy little scrappy little kid uh, that I knew from the improv and uh, we all sort of followed Ben around and that was the Ben Stiller show and that's how uh, that was oh, sort right. of my yeah. you're, you're on that famous YouTube video from there Wilford Brimley yeah that's <laughs> that's you that's right. me yes and there are a lot of me oats yeah. but if you look at the video Grady's oats but if you look at the video they never did my hands so I'm like <laughs> I'm an old Wilford Brimley with a 25 year old guy's hands but it was a funny bit because it was all about deeply suppressed rage yeah well that's that comes know, to the surface yeah. completely yeah. well that's my uh, that's we'll put my a link to it on, on the uh, on yeah the it was 
basically, yeah, it started off, if you remember those old Wilford Brimley commercial, are you around here? You know, and then it was just, we did it, it was like taxi driver. Are you talking to me? <laughs> I don't see anyone else here. You must be talking to me. And then later I did an episode of Seinfeld that he was on. And Brimley's a really strange dude. He was in this thing called the Utah Brigade. Oh. Um, if If anybody, now this is, as I understand it. Yeah, these are alleged stories used often for satire. No right. lawsuit need be applied. Right. But from what I have been led to believe, if anyone in Utah gets the death penalty and chooses a firing squad. <laughs> You've got to have some guys ready. Will's on the list of people. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it. Um, Bring I, my own cartridges. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I did meet him. We did this an episode of Seinfeld. Uh, we're on the same episode of Seinfeld, and I was terrified that he knew who I was, but he, right. was, he just looked, Will Brimley. <laughs> <laughs> was he nice or yeah, he was hoping like, he for was, a firing squad to break out? Yeah, he was He was like, like get through it. He, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just these kind of- Where's grown. my check? He's, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he's, he's, yeah. he's Will Brimley. I always thought that should be James Mason's autobiography's real title. Where's my check? Where's my check? <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, somebody once said, uh, we all have a mortgage. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's show business. Robert, Robert Wagner said that when he was doing The Simpsons. We all have a mortgage. <laughs> so The Simpsons, you, you, um, you're in LA, you're doing stand-up, you start writing, and you wind up on the staff for many years there, writing The Simpsons with yeah, a bunch I, of other funny, funny guys. Yeah, I had been pretty, uh, I had a really good career as a stand-up. I you know, did Letterman and Ed's HBO specials and Showtime specials, and, and, and you know, what they normally do in that is you get a pilot. You know, we're going to create a show, we're going to make, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is big, we're going to make Dana. Right, and right. Uh, I made Dana about six times, uh, and I, you know, as I've said before, I've had my hand in more failed pilots than an Air Force proctologist. And <laughs> now, what were your various professions? He's a zany editorial I cartoonist. Was a zany edit. I was a zany architect, right? right. <laughs> in, in the aptly named Nice Try. They literally had the big drafting table on the set. Yeah, no, we oh, had yeah, yeah. in, in yeah, Nice right. Try. I was a zany architect. In Dana, I was. Uh, Grad student poet, <laughs> wannabe oh, poet. You were the beatnik. Uh, yeah, yeah I was basically Dobie Gillis. I was, uh, and I know what's wrong. I think I was a writer, but I, I know what's wrong. I actually wrote myself mm, okay. and that got made. And I found that I really liked the process of writing a lot, as, even as much as performing. And by that time, I had met my uh, girlfriend who I was about to marry. And the idea of being an adult for the first time became really appealing to me. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'll have a regular job. I'll get up in the morning. We bought a house. We're married. She'll go to work. I'll come to work. We'll go home at night. And uh, and I became a, a TV writer and, and wrote on Stark Raving Mad with Tony Shalhoub and Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. And, and from there, I went right to The Simpsons. I got very lucky. Uh, George Meyer, who was one of the big Mount Olympus of Simpsons writers, um, was a friend of mine and a fan of mine and knew I was looking for a job and said, oh, would you like to come in a day a week and just kind of help with jokes? And I was like, yeah, that would be amazing. And then I could go out on the weekend and do stand-up. Right, sure. And I did that for like four or five months. And then I was quite literally sitting there one day and uh, Mike Scully, who ran the show, said, uh, walked in and saw me and he said, I, you know, I think your contract is up. And I think he was politely saying, go home. Yeah, you were thinking, like, can I steal one sandwich on the way out? Yeah, here? no, really. Yeah. I was quite literally packing my stuff up. And he just said, do you want to just come every day? And I said, yeah. And he went, all right, I'll call your agent. Wow. And then he looked back and just went, sucker. And, the, <laughs> and that was quite it. And I know people hate me for that story, but that's actually what happened. And that's why I love Mike Scully. Mike Scully is one of the great 
Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. great hilarious and and hilarious guy. And yeah, and then I was on The Simpsons for seven years. Wow, and that's really kind of a in the television comedy business here. That's the A team of comedy writing, really. And yeah, also a pop culture aware show, very hip, follows politics. Yeah, very clever. Well, you know the old commercial for Palm Olive. You're soaking in it. <laughs> you know that commercial. Yeah, yeah, sure. You're sitting in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My seven years at The Simpsons, we're sitting in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> yeah, but I always like every year high they... atop Mulholland Drive at Falcons. <laughs> yeah, here we. Are. Yeah, I remember. This is cartoon money, baby. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, no. It, it was good commerce too. I remember those little election things I used to put out every year, and the, one of the things in the Republican Party that everybody in my weird world there are sure. a couple little snips of stuff. Everybody loves Wag the Dog, you know, right, 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 right. Documentary, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, everybody loves a film nobody's seen really outside the business. But a little film Danny DeVito did for HBO at the very, very beginning of his career before he was a director called "The Selling of Vince D'Angelo." Oh little no, sixty-minute thing. That. Oh, it's very funny. It's very broad, but it's, it's quite funny about a Senate race. DeVito is the horrible uh, candidate oh is and, it like the candidate or is he the sort actual of, candidate? sort yeah. of it's like a fake documentary and he plays this independent who gets in and dirty tricks and everything right 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 the vhs tapes of that are passed around like the dead sea scroll in our uh-huh. business um <laughs> and then the simpsons scene where the springfield republican party meets oh, and then know. the star chamber <laughs> right right exactly yeah it's not around the corner that's always been a very uh yeah but there's also beloved. i believe that was the one where uh, lisa simpson lost faith in government and and at one point the republican party meeting in the star chamber and i believe the dracula is there right, no, no, there's <laughs> lightning you know it's like a halloween thing yeah and mr and burns of course is chairman yeah, yeah. and then at this at the democratic one quimby was there and there's a big banner that said we can't govern which i <laughs> Yeah, they that should be sent to the DNC as a reminder. <laughs> what um, did you write well, the Quimby a really voice a lot because it was classic Massachusetts? Yeah, I, yeah, uh, it was. It was. I was very big with Quimby. I was very big with Mo because my dad was a bartender. My dad's very much a Mo kind of guy. And uh, <laughs> the first episode I wrote was called Homer the Mo, where Homer took over the bar, and uh, and that was absolutely based on my dad. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of Mo in my. Your dad's big in dad. your comedy. My I dad know. is the Everest of my psychic landscape. He looms <laughs> yeah. large over everything. Yeah, as I've described my father he's a archie bunker without the elegance and sophistication and what i find perplexing is i am the least like my father of all of my brothers Hmm. but i look exactly like him Hmm. and none of the other ones do it's yeah it's bizarre i mean it's it's spooky well, you used to have a funny bit about So I know what I look like when I'm going to be 85, and I can tell you, Mike, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really a cruel thing for a parent to do, to yeah. show the future like that. See but your I, future mapped out in a living genetic graph. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, yeah, your attitudes are different, though, because you used to joke about him being creatively racist, which I thought was a funny yeah, way to well, put my it da- together. As I've, yeah, as I've described my dad, he's powered by two emotions, rage and suppressed rage. <laughs> and my dad, yeah, my dad is an, you know, as I, you know, he's Archie Bunker, but he would actually, not, he wasn't just racist against like the big five. It wasn't just blacks, Latinos, Jews, and whoever. You'd you'd hear him in the other room complaining at the news. Oh, there go the Belgians again. Are you looking at this? Can't believe it. They're worse than the Burmese. I love the fact that he has low Belgian expectations, which are still exceeded by whatever horrible things they're up to. I remember I did- Them um, and the waffles. (laughs) I did Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect, the first show before Real Time. Which, of course, is often the most politically correct show in the universe. There's a great irony to that. Yeah. The bitter irony for Bill is that the show was called Politically Incorrect, and it was on ABC, and then they fired him because he had the audacity to be politically incorrect. (laughs) I'd forgotten that story. Yeah, yeah. uh, because he said, uh, you know, it's like, 
There's nothing cowardly about being in a plane that flies into a building. We're the one lobbing drones over the mountains, which is literally true, but you couldn't say that in the months after 9-11. Right. So. Uh, and so oddly, the Disney Corporation showed him the door. And then I uh, just remember I did it once, and they were very nice to I me. Believe you, I believe you well, were there. On, well, this is on the other show. This is on Real Time, yeah, the yeah, HBO the, 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 the show. And I'm show. the reason that you did that. That's I, right. It's your fault. Now it's it all coming my, back to I'm me. I'm the Pied Piper that led you into Yeah. Yeah. Oh, come on. Come on, Tessio. It'll be safe. We're just we're, yeah, we'll take you to a meet. I'll guarantee the security, Michael. Fredo, we're going fishing. What <laughs> yeah, could go wrong? We're yeah, going out on the lake in a boat. Piece of cake. It's going to be you in a theater with 700 screaming uh, Democrats who'll clap at anything. And then the panel was, Carville felt sorry for me. And it was uh, a woman from Canada who was trying to make her bones as a left-wing pundit. And the great Martin Short. It was one. It was a great Martin Short, yeah. And Mark tried. He was, he was pretty good. But it was yeah. like the audience was, was... Well, I you know, I do that show. And occasionally you run into these people. There was a woman that was, I was on recently who as a GOP uh, strategist, a uh, Latina... I blame her name. She recently made the news. Oh, she, Anna Navarro. Anna Navarro. Yeah, right. Sure. Okay. Lovely, yeah, she's been woman. she's been out killing Trump. Yeah. much to my delight. Right, but she she came with a bandolier of quips and was just like firing one after another, and it was just it was almost too prepared, but you couldn't get in. The other time, well, the I big mistake a, is when the straight politicos try to be funny. Yeah, that's, if they're not that, naturally yeah. funny people, yeah. which some are, but not many. Yeah, and I it's always like let the professionals work. Yeah, you know? and they're very good about keeping comedians that don't know what the hell they're talking about off the camera because that's right. always uh, that's, so. Dane Cook's never been able it's to just, get that. Oh, just hit, like yeah. you know the, the very simplest, uh, you know, right, the very right. sim- clapter again, clapter, and yeah, yeah, they're all they're all all Republicans are evil. All the, you know, it's yeah. just a snore. But the other one, Fareed Zachariah was on, and he was the only person I've ever met that could inhale and continue talking at the same time. Yeah, yeah like he's like some sort of pundit machine to the point that the day after I did it with him, I just tweeted, is Fareed Zachariah still talking? He's a smart guy, but he has his, no shortage of opinions. His that he's brain thinks to share. his mouth is a radio. He can't have silence or he loses his license. Um, but yeah, I, I love of all the pundits you get mad at. <laughs> He's a car as a guy. Oh, he is <laughs> my that's someone. He's like a Belgian. He's my pet noir. <laughs> but I did the original politically incorrect. I did with Charlton Heston. Oh my god! And my dad was like, "You tell him he's my president." <laughs> I was like, uh, and uh, and <laughs> I did a spot with him once. And he was, by the way, and lovely guy yeah he he was great though he you know we we're all intimidated he shows us years ago he's doing yeah. a spot it wasn't an array it was something else and he gets out the you know pulls out the ballpoint pen and starts correcting the grammar on the prompter read because you know we wrote it in vernacular language it wasn't sure sure, sure 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 and then like silently unclicked the pen and like handed it to me i'm now prepared to do the material yeah you know, i felt like two feet tall it opened your eyes to that world that uh, these people you know i really enjoyed what david axelrod said uh, in a sh- one of your shows recently where he was talking about being on Meet the Press with Carville and Carville defending Hillary Clinton in 2008 and saying, like, she's got the experience, she's got this, she's got that. And then during the commercial, like, like if you can get Obama out of Iowa, I don't think that you can horse stop gonna run. Right, yeah. That horse is going to run. Right, going to run. And that's what it's like. It's just, it is a business to these people. And... People need to remember that. And I'm a pretty socially progressive, fiscally conservative sort of fellow. I don't care what people do in their bedroom. and uh, Except for those Belgians. (laughs) You know what waffles come from, don't you? (laughs) I couldn't resist the cheesy callback. (laughs) The Belgian thing just kills me. (laughs) 
Charlton Heston and Michael Medved, the socially conservative film critic, were by far the two sweetest people I met during that show. Yeah. And the two people that really could not have given a crap less about me or my opinion were Michael Moore and Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who I went up and I said, uh, Congresswoman, how should I address you on the show? She went, you can call me Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Go fuck myself. What? (laughs) Yeah, often I find a lot of the lefties who are so dedicated to doing the people's business aren't always the nicest people. Yeah, exactly, yeah. There's the old joke about Republicans are great neighbors, but you know, then maybe maybe you don't want them in charge of everything. Well, I think you should. I I went up to Michael Moore once and I... I yeah, said, he's a nasty piece of work. Yeah, he's, I said to him, I said, oh my God, for a minute there, I thought you were Roger Ebert. Went, Why? Why would you think that? And you yeah. just want to go, you're both morbidly obese. Why <laughs> Did else? You? Yeah. I, I yeah. didn't have the balls. Yeah, he. Uh, I remember being at the Aspen Comedy Festival. They oh, used yes. to have this big. I remember. I I'm was gonna, on a panel once there. Yeah. I'm going to. Can I dish a little dirt, Mike? <laughs> Absolutely. We're like two old women in Brooklyn. All we need now is a pack of merits and a coffee cake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the Aspen Comedy Festival. Walking around, it's winter time, and HBO used to do this big thing in Aspen. Right, because sure. Because they wanted to go skiing for free. That's how because, I got on their radar screen yeah. and sold them my first script. Absolutely, yeah. I would remember that. But yeah. the, the people in Aspen don't need comedy. You know, you know, yeah. you know people they in Bedford Stuyvesant. Yeah. Yeah, people in Bedford Stuyvesant need comedy. Right. People in Aspen, they're fine. But long story longer, they had this really cool thing where it was cold, it was winter time, and there were these kids on the street that had these backpacks with hot chocolate in it. You come and they give you hot chocolate. Sure. It's really cool. And uh, I was walking around, talking to him, and I went to this one kid. So how's it been going? Pretty good. Met some famous people? Because, yeah, I met Steve Martin the other day. It was amazing. He just walked up to me, and I gave him hot chocolate. It was great. I go, anybody uh, any, anybody not been cool? And he went, everybody's been great, but Garrison Keeler is a fucking asshole. <laughs> 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 Which, by the way, I've heard from multiple sources. <laughs> I was like, what? Well, we're Radio Free GOP is now the podcast that's taken down Michael Moore and Garrison Keillor. Yeah. You actually have a lot of great stories. I'm but, gonna... it's all, but it's like you don't imagine. Like Garrison Keillor is like Burl Ives smashing a ukulele like Pete Townsend. It's just an incongruous image. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, but, you know, that, of course, has to be true. Oh, yeah. Because that's the nature of it. You know, it's like, that's why there was an old Dabney Coleman TV show that was on for about an hour I used to love called Buffalo Bill. Of course, Buffalo Bill, you know, yeah. Yeah. And it was him and his element playing as grumpiest guy in the world in a, mm-hmm. in a smiley, love me business. You well, know, a lot of times great. people, and this just goes into a larger psychological, the people that are grumpy people by and large are really nice to other people. Right. Yeah, because right. they're processing their agita on themselves. And George Carlin, I can say firsthand, loved people, hated groups. Yeah, yeah. His audience was great. But, you know, one-to-one he was the greatest guy. And I've been with him in social situations where we, people would just interrupt him, like, you know, talking to somebody and just, excuse me, Mr. Carlin, I saw you in Iowa in 1974. <laughs> yeah, like, just yeah. rude, no social graces at all. Mm-hmm. He was endlessly, effortlessly polite and sweet to them because he knew that this moment was not about him. It was about them. Sure. You know? I met him once who was very nice. To yeah, he was, the, he was really, really great. So you've, you've had a lot of these funny meetings with kind of famous people or interesting. Yes, yes. I when am. you were a young comic, you did a funny thing with Bob Hope that I remember. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, so this is a great story. And then we'll get into politics. Sure. More. Well, yeah, you know, Mr. Mr. America, Bob Hope. And, and, you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, again, like what Bob was like off camera was Bob was incredibly wealthy for a very good reason. If Bob was driving around Burbank and saw 
starving child, Bob would be the first person to pull over and offer to sell that child an apple. <laughs> um, I did the... I'm going to get mail. Keep going. <laughs> Send it to yeah. me. Uh, I did the... But he loved the troops. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he loved the troops. Um, I did the second to last Bob Hope TV special, which is the Bob Hope Young Comedians special, which is interesting to see Bob Hope and Young in the same title right. um, at that time. And we had to do a, a commercial together. And... The commercial was Bob and I sitting next to each other on stools. Bob, utterly oblivious to my presence. Just, you know, I, it was like literally doing a commercial with like an orangutan. It's just like, he'll stay on the stool. Just don't, don't chirp or whistle and he'll be fine. You know, and we have these lines. So I'm sitting on the stool. Bob's sitting next to me, utterly oblivious to my presence. Dana, put your arm around Bob. Bob is right there, by the way. Like, okay. Put my arm around Bob. As I've described it, his, his arm felt like a sweater full of light bulbs. Um, and then I had this line. It was like, uh, hi, I'm Dana Gould. Join me and my new best friend this Thursday on his comedy special on NBC. And then Bob turns to me and said, hey, I love this kid. Didn't you used to be my caddy? And I, the first take, take, hi, I'm Dana Gould. Join me and my new best friend this Thursday on his comedy special on NBC. Hey, I love this kid. Didn't you see Helen's catechism? <laughs> Cut. And then I get up. And then I hear the director go, we're going to go again. And Bob suddenly, what? <laughs> we're going to go again, Bob. Why? <laughs> like, Bob didn't realize he didn't do a great take. And then it was amazing. The director, not to like bum him out, goes... Oh, by the way, if anybody wants to dispute this claim, I have the footage. <laughs> the director goes, peanuts. Ah! You're eating peanuts, Bob. You have some peanuts on your chin. Ah! And then a makeup woman came up and pretended to wipe non-existent peanuts off his chin. <laughs> and then eventually, eventually, we, you know, we got to do 17 How many takes. takes. Yeah. yeah. I cut, love cut, this cut. <laughs> Did but, he ever acknowledge you at all? Hey, kid, or any... Uh... Nope. Wow. But what's interesting was he didn't know at the very end of the take, like after after like the fourth take, and I always, he goes, didn't you used to be my caddy? And then I do like a sad sack take. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of the last take, he goes, hey, I love this kid. Didn't you used to be my caddy? And I do the cake and they go cut. And he goes, he always does that hurt take. <laughs> you told me to do it. <laughs> oh my God. Comedy legend. Bob Comedy Hall. legend. Yeah. When he did... His monologue, it was it was alarming to see. Like he was well into his 90s. And when he came out to do his monologue, he was suddenly two feet taller yeah. and sharp as a tack. I mean, like like a lightning bolt. Huh. It was just like he had he he kept his troops <laughs> in yeah. reserve. And when it came down to March, they bang, 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 bang. Yeah. You know, the entire special, like he was on. It was amazing to see. The big story is that Carson retired because, in his words, he didn't want to be Bob. Right, you sure. Know, but still, in that moment for the gracefully. monologue, whatever it was, the, the demons came inside, they gave him the energy, and bang. Yeah, well, I think yeah, yeah. it was like he, he knew he only had X amount of, you know, X, X amount of gas left in the tank, and he saved it for when he needed it. You know, he's not going to, you know, and as I've said, like, why the hell would Bob even deal with At that point, 
you know, in, in from his perspective, I'm just an annoying crow. You know, just yeah. bark, bark. <laughs> he has no reason to pay any attention to me. <laughs> I'd always heard the story in writer circles, and again, I have no idea if it's true, but it's funny. Where Hope would have the gag writers come over to get their paychecks every two weeks, and he'd stand at the top of the staircase and he'd fold them into paper airplanes, and they'd catch him. But they're all 88 years old, so you know these poor arthritic old guys are falling down, diving for the checks. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's another story that one of the guys that wrote jokes for him, he was out catting around, and his wife called Bob and said, "Is Marty over there, Bob?" Because he would have his writers over right, the house. Sure. And uh, and Bob immediately like puts together what's going on. He goes, actually, yeah, he just came in. He just came in. Hang on, when I got to talk to him, and then I'll put him on the phone. I'll, we'll call you back. He clicks, and like four minutes later, he walked into his own house. <laughs> <laughs> Bob said, "You just walked into his house." <laughs> now let's take a minute to do a little commerce. Okay, this is normally where the ads would go, and in the future, it could be a lot of ads right here. But right now, it's just a sneaky way to remind you about the message up front in the podcast that you might have skipped over. I know what a cagey bunch of listeners I have. What I was talking about then was we're going to try for the next two weeks to have a lot less ads and try more listener support to try to break even on this caper. So how can you help? Go to RadioFreeGOP.com, click that little PayPal button, and fork over a few simoleons to pay the power bill. Everything goes back to put on this podcast. Okay, thank you very much. No ads here today. Now, back to the interview. Well, speaking of clowns, here's a big transition. <laughs> Look at you go. Yeah, this is, here we go. I kept this packed for the whole interview. Uh, <laughs> this this campaign is both depressing, but from a comedy point of view, the pure madness of it is kind of entertaining. It is, but also like as 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 uh, someone said to Patton Oswalt, you must really love this from a comedian's point of view. And he went, no, I really love the country. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and I feel also like I've been in therapy since I was six months old. I'm astounded by it. She's a flawed candidate, but she's in the league. You know, she might not be the, the most cut and dry team in the league, but she's in, he is from my perspective, there's no historical analogy to him. Yeah, yeah. And as somebody who is aware of clinical narcissism as a psychological problem, it's textbook. Right. I mean, totally. He's the atomic clock of that. Yeah. And I've quoted you many times on that. And this is what I find funny. And this is how I try to make it work in comedy. I'm along by the people that go like, yes. Yeah. No, I know. He's flawed. He, he's irrational. He he speaks from the cuff. He's a counterpuncher. He, I wish he didn't say that. I wish he didn't say that. I'm still going to vote for him. It's the people that if they could take his cell phone away from him at night. Yeah, he'd be okay. He'd be okay. Yeah. So you have no problem giving the nuclear codes to a guy that you freely admit can't be trusted with his telephone. Right, right. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> if he'd only knock off the crazy tweeting, then I could live with the, yeah. him and the biscuit yeah, to launch he the does, codes. He, he is granted a lot of constitutional authority once he is elected. Right. And that will continue. We well, all we know would do that with how the this ends. All through September. Well, if he'd only pivot and read the three by five cards, then it would be okay. Like, no, he's crazy. It's not okay. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. made a lot of not okay decisions here along the way. It's not like, hey, he's now falling for a better PR tactical set so we can forgive him everything else. I mean, he's who he is. That's why there was never any fixing. Yeah. You know. For lack of, yeah, for better or worse, he is who he is. And when he is president, this 
exhausting chaos will continue. Yeah, he'll be crazy as president because the same diseases will be in, in force. He needs to love of strangers. He has to be the hero of every story he's in. It's never his fault. He never takes responsibility for anything. Right. And if somebody tweaks Anybody him, who has had a six-year-old yeah, knows exactly. this behavior. I mean, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and the people who are going to have it the worst, if he is elected, are Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan because there's something about that personality that it punches hardest to the people closest to them. That's right. Well, the people trying to put rules and adult behavior around. Yeah. And that's that's why he hates Ryan so much. I mean, he's mad that Ryan wouldn't endorse him after all the madness, but he doesn't understand it was madness. He, he probably has convinced himself it is all a conspiracy. Those women were all sent by secret Democratic agents. Sure. I mean, being connected to reality is not part of what he's got. Uh, and, yeah, and in his defense, when has he ever had to dance with reality he only <laughs> when the bondholders finally put him on an allowance right, right, and locked him up in 96 or yeah, something by all reports that was the worst year of his life he didn't yeah. take it very well at all but that was also i find it's a similar thing with sarah palin who in, in the grand history i think established the beachhead that trump later used to invade the continent yeah look how it ended for her well <laughs> but that was a really interesting personality where her reputation as a maverick because she took on the alaskan republican party and then she became governor and took on her own party. But then when she joined the McCain campaign, she took on the McCain campaign. Right, right. When she got hired by Fox, she took on Roger Ailes. Right. It, it, it wasn't that she was a maverick, is that she turns on the person closest to her. Right. She turns on the closest authority figure. No, I think that's totally his thing too. Yeah, you know? and yeah. So and by the way, this- just as screwy on the left. Bernie Sanders was not a Democrat. He was an independent. He joined the party, announced his candidacy, and then was furious that the DNC was predisposed to be to, for somebody who was to be for somebody, yeah, yeah. more and, electable and the Democrat. Right. right. And more, and no, America, he was a Democratic he, Socialist, and he'll be back right, to that now. Right. No. I believe the day after he withdrew, he went back to it. Yeah, that's who he is. Yeah, no, but, it's but just, he'll give her. Fits so what because- is your? So what is your? Why are you astonished? You yeah. know, if Rance Priebus acted more like Debbie uh, Wasserman Schultz, Jeb might be running. <laughs> you know? The problem is, alas, Rance doesn't have any power. There was mm-hmm. one moment where he could have done something about Trump because right before the convention, there was an anti-Trump thing with some delegate support brewing. And instead, they got out the pliers and put it away in the name of party order, which right. I think in hindsight, big mistake. Yeah. So we have a by seat way, for Reince at the show trials. By the way, Wasserman Schultz sounds like one of the cases at Nuremberg. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Wasserman v. Schultz. Here we are. So do you have a Trump joke in your act? Do you get into it much? You still do some stand-up. Well, I do. I have, a, I have a, an interesting concept. It starts with Charles Manson. Now, what made Charles Manson really historically relevant was that he ruined murder. (laughs) We've always had murder. Cain slew Abel. That was 25% of the population at the time, Mike. We couldn't get to five people without a murder. So we've always had murder, but Mm -hmm. there was always a decorum to murder. There was, shall I say, a dance. (laughs) No one ever did what Manson did. No one ever wrote words on the wall. You know, took the romance out of it. Took the romance. Yeah. And yeah, he ruined murder. And when the police arrested Manson, it was like, you've ruined murder for everybody. <laughs> and that's what Trump is doing with electoral politics. He's taken something awful and he's ruined it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. It's the most yeah. depressing slog of an election ever. Yeah, no one likes it. Everybody wants it yeah. to be over. I mean, presidential elections are fascinating in the way that 
you know, murder trials are fascinating and the way that cold case files are fascinating. Or the, There's a reason that all of these murder procedural shows are well-rated. People are fascinated by them, but they're hard and they're ugly. And nobody in history that I can, you know, know from my self-education goes to the places that he's gone. And, and you really have to go, like, to me, it was when he mocked that reporter, the disabled reporter. Right. To sure. me, that was like, game over nope and so from there on out it became a head scratcher and it is sort of like if mom brings home a chimp as her boyfriend and the chimp lives with you for a couple of weeks i guess well i guess her boyfriend's a chimp right (laughs) it just becomes the norm beaten down into it well that yeah i blame the media a little bit because i blame the media a lot all of this if the media had done i tweeted this had the media done its job he would have never made it out of iowa well the uh, the issue though is republican primary voters about 43 percent which is what he got they wanted a big hammer to beat the system into pulp with, and he's the hammer. So he was kind of the lost weekend decision set. He was the outcome yeah. of that in the primaries. And I think that was pretty hard to stop. A bunch of us spent a lot of time thinking about how to do that, but his voters wanted, it was either going to be him or Cruz for that segment. We thought in the Jeb world where I was working, we could unite the other segment and then have the big face-off in the right. end, but we never even got there. I would say where I grind on the media a little bit is the business of it requires action every day. So every day is the Hindenburg explosion. Every poll is the most important poll. Every election is the most important election of your lifetime. Right, exactly. I called Trump a year ago a political zombie, walking dead. He moves, he grumps, he's never going to be president of the United States. Some people thought I was talking about the primary, but I try to make it clear by zombie, dead, politically dead, never going to be president of the United States. That's always been true. But the Hindenburg news media, everything has to count, Sure, keeps saying, oh, he's going to pivot. He's going to get better. Oh, this new poll, it's only two points in Florida. He's surging. You know, they're they're, they're constantly kind of propping him up. When when those of us who really know how this stuff works, right. all thought, what a boring election. There's going to well, be a I, zombie ricocheting around till finally in a puddle of you know bones and blood, it collapses, and then mediocre Hillary's elected. Right. And I was one of those people that when it, seemed to tighten i was like what well, right, how is this possible well the coverage is all driven by the polls and the poll noise trump surging you know and the truth is fundamentally he's always been stuck down between 40 and 43 it's uh-huh. just that what happens is voters get up on board her and look around and think, oh really and go right. back to undecided and she drops down because right. they they don't really want her either right but as you said she's credentialed enough to be like a mediocre ball player but she's in the majors yeah and and i'll say he is in his own planet yeah and this could be educational for your for your listenership i'm gonna vote for her and when people say like she's awful educate me like how is she so awful i wouldn't buy a used car from her right i actually think that the show house of cards is a pretty close depiction of what those two are actually like you know i have to admit i've only seen the uk one I'm a I understand. It's great, yeah. but it's uh, it's like, but and this is why I never fell for the Sanders thing. Uh, I never go for the outsider thing. It's a big job that requires a cold-hearted. Yeah, no, no, I agree. A little uh, motherfucker, for lack of a better term. Yeah, a little bit of Nixon is not a bad thing. No, I mean you. It, it's like you said about how Paul Ryan needs to run the house, and I don't know if he has that ability or not. You know, you have to the Iron Fist. Right. You know, Lyndon Johnson. Just reference point for the audience. We we talk politics a lot, and I was talking about how. Oh no, this was from your show on Axelrod. This oh right, is, right. Yeah, okay, the, I said it there as well. That I was going to send him a show, style. Well, I'm thank alone, you. Thank I'm you. alone in the tub with just your voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dana, I'll uh, I'll lower everything an octave now just for you. 
you know, a little fear goes a long way to bring some discipline to it. Look, sure. she she's going to be tougher than Obama in foreign policy. Well, um, James Carville once said if Hillary Clinton gave Barack Obama one of her testicles, they'd both have two. <laughs> right, right. No, <laughs> she's Putin is going to be in for a a, a little bit of trouble now. Yeah, which there's I'm a for. reason that he doesn't want her. Right. Want, I, yeah. I just don't like all the lefty policy and the political calculations and the ethical blind spot big enough to drive a truck by. And, and I agree with all that. This and, year, but what is interesting is the yeah. reason the people on the left don't like her is because they think she's too conservative. Right, exactly. There was a great joke about her on Saturday Night Live where Hillary said in the third debate, Americans have their choice between voting for the Republican or Trump. Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> or it's Trump or the Republican. Yeah, yeah no, it, it is based on truth. She's not a Republican, but she is more conservative than Trump on trade and some other issues and yeah. I think on foreign policy. You know, He's and talking a lot about of tried NATO, and true so. liberals really, I mean, time has softened his image in the way that it has softened, you know, Truman's, you know, people forget that Harry Truman was ridden out of town in a rail. The Welfare Reform Act, a lot of people have never forgiven. Oh, yeah, no, she has problems on the left, and her biggest problem is they have more power now than ever before if they win the Senate. No, Elizabeth Warren is going to be barking her ear like a Oh, my goodness. Um, Yeah, yeah. uh, Hillary ought to get some kryptonite. She's going to need it. Yeah. Uh, She better hope Kurt Schilling has a good, strong run. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unbelievable. um, (laughs) What's your take? One more political question. I want to talk about what you're doing now. Okay. I've noticed that I think this year political comedy has been kind of dead. Is it because people are just, I mean, not all of it. There have been funny bits. It's very hard to make fun of something that is- It's such a tragedy and people are so tired of it that people can't really find the funny in this, I think. It's very difficult to make fun of something that isn't of itself a self-parody. Yeah, It's really hard to make fun of somebody who's ostensibly making fun of himself, although he's unaware of it. The biggest target- for political comedy, I thought was Michael Dukakis. Right. You know, it was a... Well, he was so serious so and serious, pretentious. And, so, yeah. yeah, so sonorous and sincere, and it was easy to do an impression of him, and he did not take himself, he had no sense of humor about himself. It was not easy to make fun of Bill Clinton. Making fun of George Bush was, I thought, lame. It was just, he's dumb. Yeah. W, not HW. You know, he's dumb. Well, yeah. that's, you know, I remember in the Simpsons movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Simpsons movie was the president of the United States. And I remember George Meyer sort of made the script a much better script because in the original, there were a lot of dumb jokes about Schwarzenegger. And this is something that's probably be close to your heart. And, and George made the very smart point of, well, let's just unpack this. Here's a guy that came to our country, couldn't speak the language, became the most successful weightlifter in the history of weightlifting, then became a major movie star at the time, the most successful movie star on the planet, then became the governor of the ninth largest economy in the world. Yeah, right, And our exactly. take on him is he's dumb. <laughs> right, too you easy. Know, it's like, yeah, it's just too easy. It's too much of a layup. That's why I always thought the best Saturday Night Live Reagan sketch was the one where Reagan played really smart. They usher yeah, the Girl Scouts out, he picks up the phonies in Chinese and yeah, everything. Yeah, brilliant. And that's, that's, right. that's good writing. That's called, in writing or, or in acting, that's called the opposite intention. Right. Let's do, what is the opposite thing to do here? Much more you know? interesting. Yeah. yeah. And Question. there would be a great Trump sketch if he was in real, very pious and very serious. Right. I've always and thought like the great- Having to do this to get elected. Right. Ex- not the broad stuff. I mean, you can get laughs of it, but they're not yeah. very clever laughs. I, I thought the sketch they should write is a pious Trump worried in the middle of the night makes a phone call and it's to Hillary and he's like look I'm trying the whole plan okay the thing we agreed to at the wedding I started with the Mexican rapist thing I went up in the polls this is horrible Milano won't speak to me and he goes through everything like it was all her idea 
and she's coaching him, right? Here's the big finish. Yes, and know? were I writing that sketch, yeah. I would have her appear over him like the Emperor in Star Wars, right, exactly. like a giant three-dimensional, like in right. a hood. She's continue, writing- <laughs> continue the path. Right. <laughs> she's writing all the material for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the mastermind behind yeah, all of Yeah, that would be a much funnier yeah. sketch. What yeah. is thy bidding, my master? <laughs> that would be a yeah. great sketch. Yeah, yeah that would and be a great sketch. he's just, you know, following orders. We are here on the eve of Halloween, and this is yes. our first Radio Free GOP Halloween special. Mm-hmm. This is why you're our, our guest, right. not only your political and comedic insight, but Halloween is your favorite holiday. It's, it is my, uh, yeah. It's the only holiday. I refer to Christmas as post-gift Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a fanatic for all the horror stuff. I lo- yeah, I grew up loving all that stuff. It, I, it, I think your biggest idol is Vincent Price, too. Vincent, if I'm not. <laughs> Vincent Price is my, uh, is my uh, idol in terms of how I pick up women. <laughs> Tell me more about that. (laughs) There were two Vincent Prices. The smooth Vincent Price, and then he would go crazy. And all great actors fall into that. Now it's Pacino does that now. Nicolas Cage also does that now. Vincent Price is... I understand that your car broke down outside. I insist that you spend the night here in the castle. And then you get in, he closes the door. Don't talk to any of the paintings. You know? How would he pick up women, though? That's what I, I want to know. The, pri- the price term. <laughs> you know, the best artwork is available at Sears. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as I said, Halloween. And in Halloween, of course, very famous holiday when people you don't know come to where you live and take all of your stuff. Right, right. And next up is Thanksgiving, <laughs> or as Native Americans call it, Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. That was a polished joke. <laughs> yeah, it's professional. Um, so, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Tip your server. Um, well, let's. But Let's, yeah, I, I, I love uh, that. And, I, you know, I, I have two things. Like, I'm a comedian and a comedy writer, but I love horror movies and, and Halloween and all that stuff. And oddly, the biggest success I've had in my career lately is when I finally combined them. About a year ago, I had this idea of doing like, I wanted to do something like a horror movie to make it because I love that stuff. But how do you make it funny? And I didn't want to do like Young Frankenstein because... That's been done quite brilliantly. Right, sure. And I wanted to, well, what hasn't been done? And I thought, what if you made a horror movie and then you just put a character into the middle of it that did not belong in it? And then it became, in my mind, it stopped becoming a movie because I didn't. I realized that, no, I'm never going to get it made. I want. I actually want to see this. So I'll do a digital short. I'll do a little five-minute digital short for Funny or Die or Adult Swim. And the premise will be, what if my dad who we've discussed, right. was Buffy the Vampire Slayer or was Shack <laughs> the Night Stalker. Right. In the sense that he knows there's monsters, doesn't care, right. wants to watch the All-Star game, couldn't give a crap less. And I was preparing to shoot that. I uh, My friends are the makeup artists that do The Walking Dead. I had aged myself up and was getting ready to shoot like a little five minute. I'd written a little five minute script. And I was having lunch with my friend Pete Aronson who runs IFC. We were just having lunch. And he said, you should write a funny X-Files. And I said, I did. I just did. Right. And I pitched it to him. And he goes, well, if you could change A to B and C to D and W to 6, we'd be interested in in looking at that. So I went off and I rebuilt it as a half-hour show. And they picked it up and it premieres. There's a sneak preview of the first episode on Halloween night. And then it premieres 
and it's regular time slot on Wednesday nights at 10 on IFC, and it's called Stan Against Evil. It takes place in New Hampshire, and just basically a guy based on my dad, just a gruff, conservative, retired sheriff who's cursed and has to fight demons, doesn't care, doesn't want to. <laughs> just a, a job. Yeah, well, you gave me uh, you gave me an, a, a couple of old Nixon bumper stickers. Right, sure. Uh, he has one of them on his car. <laughs> he's, <laughs> you know, he's a very old school. And uh, yeah, you know, and it's one of those things where it's really scary. All the horror stuff is played straight. The reason it's funny is because the people fighting the monsters are behaving the way normal people behave. They're not in a stylized horror movie. Right. Uh, so while they're, you know, walled off fighting these demons... The two people are having a big argument over whether or not Starsky and Hutch were gay, which is what you would do in real life. You know? Right, right, exactly. Because yeah. this town is like infected, right? And yeah, he's it's, the guy it's, keeping a lid on it. Yeah, all. there was a. The, it's near. It's in New Hampshire. This in Salem. In 1692, they burned uh, 20 people. I believe they burned 16 women, four men, and uh, a dog. Mostly uh, hung or drowned, not all burned. But that's the true story of the Salem witch trials. Right, in New Hampshire. In, in, in Massachusetts, in Salem. Okay, that's I was going to say, right, this my, is in New Hampshire. Yeah, my Did time you, was yeah. in New Hampshire where uh, a local constable was a little, as we call overzealous, <laughs> and uh, burned 172 people for witchcraft. <laughs> oh, so it's the mirror of it. Because I was going to say, in yeah. New Hampshire, all they burn are political ambitions. <laughs> Which they do on a very regular basis. Yeah, yeah they burned down Bob Dole. But yeah, uh, like a copycat in Salem. Yeah, this guy Constable Eccles didn't, didn't want to be outdone. Didn't want to be outdone. 172. Yeah, burned 172 people at the stake, and they're really mad. And they've <laughs> cursed every constable in the history of this town. Every sheriff in the history of this town ah. has died early and young, except for this one guy, Stanley Miller, who's the only sheriff in town to not die early and horribly in office. When the show starts, his wife has just passed away, and he's been replaced by the town's first female sheriff, which is the worst thing to ever happen to him outside of his wife dying and him losing his job of 27 years. Right. And who plays him? John C. McGinley from Scrubs. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, was also- uh, in Got Pl- the Irish rage thing going yeah, perfectly. Exactly. Yeah, he's a, uh, people in Platoon. He's the red-haired uh, guy in Platoon. He's a brilliant actor. Basically plays it like, you know, uh, a cross between Quint and Sterling Hayden from Dr. Strangelove. (laughs) And he's uh, been replaced by Janet Varney, who's this blonde haired, blue eyed, beautiful sort of Amazonian Wonder Woman character who's the new sheriff in town. What we learn is the reason he didn't die was because his wife knew about the curse would run around at night killing all of these demons (laughs) to keep him safe. And now that she's passed on, he's having to do it himself. And uh, so although he doesn't care about them and doesn't want to fight them, he has to because they're out to get him. That sounds and, uh, funny. For better or worse, it came out exactly the way I wanted it. And uh, I think it's it's really scary and it's really funny. And it's, uh, it's a half hour on uh, Wednesday nights at 10 on IFC. Stan Against Evil. And yeah. for all your other Dana Gould needs, you've got a couple of comedy CDs. You've got a website. Tell me yeah, how uh, people can get more. Yeah, go to DanaGould.com, D-A-N-A-G-O-U-L-D. You can access my podcast. Right. The, Dana the Dana Gould, Gould Hour. Hour. Right, exactly. Partially at fault for this podcast. <laughs> More than partially. More of the Falcon's Layer recording studio got me started. So thank you for that. Um, and uh, yeah, I have Funhouse. Let me put my thoughts in you. I know what's wrong are my three specials that are CDs. My new one, uh, Mighty Mouth, I'm recording in February. Oh, there's a bunch of video. You know, it's a pod. It's, a bunch, I got it's a all bunch there. Of it's a Dana Gould got story. Got a bunch of junk like everybody else. <laughs> I, think Mr. Ha- I think Mr. Haney and Green Acres just traveling around my wagon of wares. <laughs> yeah, well, that is a sight to behold, Dana 
com, and you're still on the road doing a little stand-up in support of the show. I am. So people can see you live. Anything coming up uh, right after Halloween? I will be in San Francisco at the Punchline, my old stomping grounds, on November, I believe, 10th, 11th, and 12th. Okay. And then uh, in uh, on New Year's Eve, I will be performing with everyone's favorite from Radio GOP, Bill Maher and I will be. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. You know, he probably is half the people's favorite on Radio uh, Free good, GOP. Yeah. Well, that'll be funny. Uh, you're a good friend of mine for a long time. I've seen you in stand-up. You crush and kill. I highly give you the Murphy comedy recommendation, and I don't give that easy. I'm no. a snotty comedy consumer. True. Dana Gould, thank you very much for doing Radio Free GOP, the voice of the Republican resistance. There, that ought to hold your fascist minions. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> I put you on a podcast trying to get your career alive, and look what ah, you do to me. Come on. <laughs> All right, where's the whiskey? <laughs> it's number one. For rumors and fun, it's resistance podcasting. Radio I want to thank our guest, shock horror master Dana Gould, for a very fun interview. Be on the lookout for his new TV show, Stan Against Evil, premiering Halloween night on IFC. Also, you can check out all his stuff and stay up on Dana Gould information at Dana's website, danagould.com. There's some funny internet stuff. If you are a Dr. Zayas, Planet of the Apes guy, Google Dana Gould, Dr. Zayas, and you will find a compendium of YouTube clips that will make you laugh. Oh, there they go. They're not laughing. The Orthodoxy police hot on our trail. They are. Let's see. Yep, they are wearing cute little Halloween costumes now. I think we're going to be seeing all of them at the show trials, and I am looking forward to it. Reince Priebus, buy a new suit. Okay, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with our special final pre-election extravaganza as we face the rubble and the future of the Republican Party. I'm excited about the future. I am bummed about the rubble. Okay, I got to get out of here, off to a new undisclosed location. Thank you, as always, for listening. And remember, in the end, the Republican resistance will prevail and victory will be ours. Radio Free GOP, the resistance sound all can be long. When you become president, do you think they tell you all the secrets right away? Or do you have to slowly earn them with good behavior? I would think it would have to be that. They can't splooge them on you all at once. It'll blow your mind, you know. The minute you're sworn in, some CIA grunt pulls you into a dark alley. All right, come here. You never heard this. We have two UFOs in a warehouse and we put JFK's brain in a monkey. <laughs> you laugh, I put nothing past those people. I'm sure somewhere in the basement of CIA headquarters there's some sealed off room. <laughs> hey, as soon as I finish eating these berries, maybe I'll go swing on that tire. Ash <laughs> <laughs> not what your country can do for you. A couple of guys bringing on a female monkey in a yellow Marilyn Monroe wig. <laughs> Go get him, champ. Show. Still in school. <laughs> I hurl my feces at the wall because it's there. This has been Radio Free GOP, the voice of the Republican resistance, with your host, Mike Murphy.